0: I'm Christine and I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week.
1: Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful.
0: So now we invite you to join us as we together.
1: Listen, listen for, for the, the word,
0: word. Hi hey everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. Today we are still in the book of Matthew and we'll be looking at Matthew 14. Verses 13 through 21. And this is a well-known story. This is about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so I'll let Alan introduce us to this um, really important, uh, important story within the context of, this, of Scripture.
1: Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson this week moves us into the next narrative section of Matthew's gospel. And it's interesting because in this section of Matthew's gospel, we're looking at mostly Matthew's reworking of Mark's narrative. There's There's a graphic that illustrates the the um, parallels between the Synoptic Gospels, and in this section of of Matthew, he's simply taking Mark's narrative, actually taking narrative pieces from Mark in order, and and actually kind of shortening them mostly, and uh, to to create this narrative section of Matthew's Gospel.
0: Oh, I find it interesting that he uh, also this is found in John.
1: Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, we're dealing with Matthew's version of the miracle of the feeding 5,000, and it does appear in all four Gospels. It's not only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in John. And some people think that perhaps the same story is recounted in the two parallel stories about the miraculous feeding of the 4,000 in Mark and Matthew. So, one of the things we find in this in comparing uh, this story of the feeding of five thousand in Matthew and Mark is that Matthew has abbreviated mark's account quite a bit and and it seems like he's trying to focus attention on Jesus as the compassionate and powerful Lord who not only heals but also feeds the people.
0: Matthew indeed has a different focus i just I find that interesting because it's the same event recorded the same event Mm -hmm. remembered seemingly all of these four gospel writers would want us to come away with the same experience and they don't
1: well and of course i mean we've been at this long enough to know that each of the gospel writers has their own um, theological uh, agenda and their own the the messages that they're Mm -hmm. trying to emphasize yeah and and you know Because the feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four Gospels, plus perhaps the two additional stories, this, this passage gives us perhaps one of the best opportunities to discuss the process of Gospel origins. Now, one of the observations that plays an important role here are what are called the so called minor agreements of Matthew and Luke over against Mark. Now, they're called minor agreements in comparison with the major agreements of Matthew and Luke, which are, you know, whole verses and even mm-hmm. um, uh, stories that, that, you know, where, where Matthew and Luke both are, are in verbatim agreement. And that's the material we know as Q mostly. Now, there are many places, then, these minor agreements, there are places where Matthew and Luke may use the same word or phrase in a narrative over against the word that Mark uses, or they may both omit the same word or phrase from Mark. And so, again, the Mm -hmm. question is why did they both use the same word? differently from the, the the same different word that then than the one mark chose or mm-hmm. why did they both omit the same f- word of phrase from Mark? yeah interesting so then the challenge then that the, it, the is that these minor agreements are the main piece of evidence that um people use to argue against the two source hypothesis that mark and q were the two main sources that people use some argue that it makes sense more sense to suggest that luke simply had access to matthew and do it do away with q altogether
0: right and i that is one of the my professors from the seminary that was what his his yeah. take on it is that q did not exist yeah the kind the, of an argument of we can't we don't have q and therefore right. why it's are we trying to recreate it yeah right yeah
1: right i i the, the thing i would push back is to say it's not hypothetical that matthew and luke share some 300 verses in common Ex- in many exactly. places ver, verbatim word for word and that doesn't well, happen in oral tradition
0: and most of the, at least from my historical background, which you know we're coming at, a different kind of group of academics, maybe that were then were in the seminary, they tended to all, all believe that Q exists. So mm-hmm. I think you know when those are paired together. Um, yeah, that the, the Q overwhelmingly wins in terms of most the New Testament scholars. Most
1: mm-hmm. New Testament scholars do do think Q is is a reality. So now, just just for your clarification, the the idea that Mark and Q are the two main sources is called the two source two source hypothesis. Yes. Sometimes uh, expanded to the four source hypothesis. B. H. Streeter expanded it by saying suggesting that Matthew and Luke both had their own unique sources. Um, the idea that we're talking about here—that Luke simply had access to Matthew and and there was no such thing as Q—is called the two gospel hypothesis. And so those those get confused because of the similarity of the of the of the t- the names, but they're mm-hmm. different. Now the my problem though with the idea that Luke simply copied Matthew is that in my view Luke uses his traditions, including his own unique source, and if if there is If there were unique sources for gospel, Writers, I think Luke has the best case because he's got so much yes. unique material. I'm not so sure that Matthew's gospel necessi- necessitates a separate source. If it is, it's not nearly as extensive as Luke's um, source. Luke has a lot of unique material that, that um, I think justifies the idea that he I had agree. a unique source. But he uses his traditions more independently, which is one reason why I believe that the content of the gospels is too complex for any single explanation yeah Uh, in fact in this case in the feeding of 5000 the minor agreements extend not only to matthew and luke but also to john's gospel Mm -hmm. so there's so so there's something else going on here because we have no reason to think that john um had any kind of there was any kind of literary influence between matthew luke and john you know that there seems they seem to be completely separate in terms of that kind of thing so for that reason, um, I think we're likely dealing with several layers of sources. And this is kind of um, a take on the on what uh, Ulrich Luz has to say in his commentary on Matthew. For, uh, you, there were differing versions of the story in the oral tradition, very likely, which would help explain the duplication in Matthew and Mark with the feeding of the 4,000. Um, but... Matthew likely had access to Mark's gospel, as we've seen, because he just, he just follows Mark so closely in so many cases. Now, mm-hmm. Lewes and others think that maybe Matthew, one of the reasons why there, there's these minor agreements are there, uh, are there is because Matthew may have had access to a second version or more than one version of Mark, but I find it unlikely that, that Mark circulated in more than one version. The only textual evidence we have regarding that has to do with the ending of Mark's gospel.
0: Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. What and so you know then what, I,
1: go ahead. So that, so then we're also besides those besides the oral tradition and, and Mark's gospel, we're dealing with the independent composition on the part of the evangelist, which we've seen abundant evidence for. Yeah. And then yes. I would add perhaps the possibility of some form of collaboration between Luke and Matthew whether it was they had access to each other's documents or whether they perhaps communicated in some way we don't know but there seems to be some form of collaboration between Luke and Matthew. Well, and so I think we're dealing and, with all those layers of sources. Yeah.
0: Well and you know we have we have Christ- Christians that are practicing the faith prior to when the gospels come out and we know they are I mean obviously they're not in a vacuum they're right. they're somehow getting information. Oh exactly I'm yeah. I'm a big fan of oral tradition. Um, because it's but we can't ever prove oral tradition right? right so we don't have that document but I just love this kind of multi-source mm-hmm. um, it makes so much more sense to me mm-hmm. within how people well, it deals work. with the
1: complexity of of how yes. literature actually works you know um, yes yes and, and you know behind it might be also sort of a shared not only a shared tradition in terms of the gospel tradition or the Christian heritage, but maybe even a shared cultural heritage uh, uh, yeah. could, have, could yeah. have played an influence on this as well. So then another introductory issue we should discuss is the fact that this miracle of Jesus has received perhaps more attention than any other. Mm-hmm. Um, beginning with the early church, much has been made of the meaning of the miracle beyond the fact that Jesus is, you know, is said to have fed uh, 5,000 plus people. So in the early church, the miracle was interpreted allegorically as a demonstration of the fact that Jesus changed the Torah, which is represented by the five loaves, along with the prophets (laughs) and the writings, represented by the two fish, into spiritual food for the new people of God in Gentile territory. Now, Jerome... Jerome represented this, and Jerome was a scholar of no uh, small repute. I mean, he was a good scholar for his day, but Origen and Jerome um, um, uh, saw that uh, view. In the days of the Reformation, the miracle was viewed as a demonstration of the fact that God cares not only for our spiritual needs, but also for our physical needs. And that was Erasmus and Calvin.
0: Right, and we will see that today when we're looking at the Reformed tradition.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, you, you've mentioned before that in the Renaissance and the Reformation, you have a, a rediscovery of the importance of bodies and, and the physicality. Yes. Yeah. So that yes, makes yes, sense. Yes. In the Catholic Reformation, the blessing of the meal was compared to the words of institution in the Eucharist, and the multiplication of the loaves was compared with transubstantiation, which also doesn't really surprise us. Yeah. Yep. Now, with the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment and modern New Testament studies, there have been several efforts to explain this story without reference to a miracle. Uh, Albert Schweitzer believed that Jesus gave only small bits of bread to a crowd of his followers in the desert as a foretaste of the Messianic banquet. So there's no sense of all ate and were satisfied. It was just a symbolic kind of thing.
0: Right, I've right, heard this, yep.
1: Heinrich Paulus believed that, that what happened was that when Jesus shared the five loaves and two fish that they had the others in the crowd followed his example so that there was plenty of food for all and supposedly luther yep. in a sermon mentioned this as yes, well
0: yes yes that's right yeah.
1: yeah yeah
0: and and what's interesting i mean i obviously i've heard this one preached before this way i think it's been preached
1: m- many times this way mm-hmm. yeah
0: and it's not a bad it's not a bad way to emphasize the ability of people to give and to you know turn towards that giving spirit kind of thing. I
1: like think it reads too much into this passage though. You know well, part, part of
0: the, yeah. Part yeah.
1: of the problem is I've mentioned before when we've dealt with this with this with this particular episode is that there's no description of the miracle itself. You know, it's it's only it's you know Jesus takes the, the the bread and the fish and 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 they distribute it and there's all this huge amount left over. And everybody right. eats, right? And so, um, uh, when 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 you have that kind of ambiguity, it invites all kinds of speculation. <laughs> that's well,
0: that's right, that's right. And and it was. We'll talk later. That may be part of the intention, right? Yeah, it could, could be. Could be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, a variant of that view of, of sharing is came from Ernst Renan, who thought that Jesus led his disciples in the, de, in the desert to teach them how to live simply and frugally. And this was a view that Chrysostom voiced. Mm-hmm. Now, many contemporary New Testament scholars, and I mean by that currently, um, right. believe that this story was created from the church's experience. It was created, sort of fabricated from the church's experience of fellowship with the risen Lord at their common meals, which often concluded with the observance of the Lord's Supper. And Ulrich Luce and his Matthew commentary and Gene Boring and his commentary are two representatives of that view. Um, now, well, I would say, you know, yeah, clearly I think you could say that the church's experience at their meals and, and with the Lord's Supper is, um, Uh, Has had an effect on the way that the feeding of the five thousand has been transmitted in the gospel tradition. Uh, You know, I'm not sure we have to go to the point of saying it was simply created from that. I I would say that it all hinges on one view, one's view of miracles in the New Testament, and of course, Mm -hmm. especially in the early days of the of the Enlightenment, there was a huge bias against anything supernatural or, or miraculous. But I've always thought that if you grant the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, and of course many don't, but uh, Mm -hmm. Paul says that we are of all people most to be pitied if Jesus was not raised. If you grant the reality of the resurrection, then miraculous interventions that demonstrate the presence of the kingdom in Jesus' life are not wholly out of question, in my opinion.
0: Right, right.
1: And so despite our inability to verify what happened by maybe strict criteria of historiography i would right. say that in matthew the point of this story is that jesus has both the compassion and the ability or the power to feed the multitude and that seems to be the point point. and actually both Lutes and and boring this is their take on it they 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 point this in this direction so it's more about the meaning of this as a story than right. than than it being a report of an actual event in their eyes
0: right right and i think that's you know that's obviously that big challenge right is that this is a factual event or if this is a story mm-hmm. um that illustrates you know jesus's goodness uh, jesus's well we'll talk sovereignty jesus's mm-hmm. um, yeah. um f- uh, taking care of people all these all these pieces and um at the end of the day i'm not sure how much it matters that we believe it's a miracle or not it, well, it still point. it still points to jesus's um persona now maybe i'm wrong but
1: um, I, you yeah. know, I, 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 can, I get the point. I, I get that, you know, we can't really verify it by the strict criteria of historiography and, and, and because we just don't have enough evidence. But, um, and, you know, again, you know, <laughs> you, you don't feed 5,000 plus people on five loaves and two fish. That just doesn't happen, right? I mean, the laws of right. nature argue against that. But again, yeah, right, as I right. said, it depends on how we view the miracles in the New Testament. And in my mind, if you grant the the miracle of the resurrection, which is the miracle of all miracles, then I don't see any problem with
0: granting what, with, others. Yeah. I agree, but there but there are people that do.
1: Yeah, that's, right. that's um, right. And
0: so, again, I don't think because you can't prove it with some kind of factual mm-hmm. base, and I would argue... With,
1: that doesn't invalidate the its worth. It doesn't
0: invalidate yeah, yeah. The, um, the the meaning of the story. I agree. And so I think that's I think that's important yeah. um, in today's world because I think people would say, "Well, this is not provable, mm-hmm. and therefore, um, I can't believe the Bible." Which right. I think then they're missing the whole point of right. the story.
1: Because yeah. the point is about the message. It's not about. Mm-hmm. It's not about you know. Uh, it's not. It's not an encyclopedia article. That's that's seeking right. to lay out facts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So then Matthew begins his account of the miracle by telling us that now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And that's Matthew 14, 13. Now, again, this is another seam in Matthew's gospel. Because remember, he's reworking and revising Mark's narrative. And so um, he's actually reordered some things. Although he's following the, the 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 narrative—he's following the order of of Mark's narrative. He's leaving some things out and rearranging some things, and so for for one thing, this is the second time in Matthew that Jesus has withdrawn due to a threat. Uh, and in Ma- in Matthew twelve fifteen, after the story of the healing of the man with the with the crippled hand, uh, it's the Pharisees who are the threat, and Jesus withdraws. And then here, because this this story follows um, the the death of John the Baptist, it's Herod Antipas who is the threat, which mm-hmm. is interesting because um, in Mark's gospel, we only have a withdrawal. Jesus withdraws only once. And then once he once right, he finishes right, that right, he right. he reengages and, and heads you know heads to or as, as Luke says it sets his face to go to Jerusalem right and, right. and, and the cross. Mm-hmm. Also, before recounting the episode about John the Baptist, Jesus was at Nazareth. The end of Mar- Matthew thirteen is the is the story of the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, which makes the idea that he withdrew from there in a boat a bit awkward. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Nazareth exactly. is nowhere near to the sea of Galilee.
0: <laughs> right, right, right.
1: So furthermore that that when it says that the crowds when the crowds heard it, in other words that Jesus had withdrawn by a boat to a deserted place by himself, uh, ostensibly that he crossed the the sea of Galilee, they followed him on foot from the towns. Well, that it seems strange that the crowds would follow him on foot. Although right. There's a similar kind of idea in John 6:2 that the crowds followed him after he crossed the lake, but in the context of John's gospel, it's because of the signs he was doing. Um, John actually says it's because of the healings, and no motive is right. given here. They just they're just following him, and why we're not really told. And so I right. I, I think that I think that we see kind of a seam here in Matthew's compositional technique. We see right. we see um, we see the hemline, so to speak, because Matthew has taken um, um, passages that are not necessarily following one another in Mark and although he's following Mark's order, he's stitching them together in a different kind of right. narrative. It's
0: almost like it's a it's almost like it's a chapter break or something. Yeah, he's using right. this as a as a segue to get to right. a new a new space, yeah, and that, that 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 works for me.
1: Now, interestingly, I've always I've always heard that Mark confused the geography and the chronology of his gospel, but it seems uh, at least that Matthew fared no better <laughs> because of these kind of awkward things that we find in this particular narrative. Right. right. Now, one of the things that I also would like to observe is that despite all the negative statements about outsiders and the parables discourse in Matthew 13, in this episode, the crowds
0: mm-hmm.
1: are following Jesus.
0: Right, right.
1: So, again, again, right. that's kind of a seam, right, in, in Matthew's composition, mm-hmm. because apparently they're not, you know, in, in, in Matthew 13, you think that the crowds are the opposition, and, right. and they're not in, in this chapter.
0: You know, the Reformation, some of the commentators pick up on this. Yeah, know, these crowds are people that don't like him, but so how does this work together? So right. they're actually trying to make sense of this. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, my, my sense out of it is that Matthew composed the parable's discourse to show the opposition and to deal with the opposition, and then he returns to Mark's narrative, which hasn't gotten there yet.
0: <laughs> right, right. No, that makes sense. Again, it's a, I don't think that was Matthew's goal, was yeah. to create the, the same kind of chronology that we right. expect him to have. Right. right.
1: So then Jesus responds to the crowds as we would expect, not, not necessarily as we would expect from Matthew 13, but as we would expect from the gospel tradition as a whole. In, Mark, in Matthew 14, right. 14, it says, Then when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured the sick. Yep. so again this sounds like a very this sounds a very different note about the crowds than what we heard in the parables discourse mm-hmm. uh, furthermore they not only received healing because it says you know that he cured their sick right but also they will be the ones to benefit from the feeding miracle although there's no mention again in Matthew as was in Mark whether they were even aware of a miracle you
0: know I I read that when you put it in our co- the comments, and I had not really thought about that. I think it comes to us as even you know, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000s, so that it's so embedded in our idea of what we're reading that we don't realize that it's never mentioned.
1: Right? No mention. No mention of a what, response uh, on the part oh, of the crowd. No mention of a response a, on the part of the crowd, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, now, that's pretty interesting.
1: Although this passage does point to Jesus' compassion, um, I think it's important for us to note here that, that Matthew actually leaves out something significant here because in, in Mark's gospel, Mark 6, 30, 34, I believe it is, he said he had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Well, mm-hmm. Matthew's already used that phrase. In his composition of the discourse about the mission, the missionary discourse of the sending out mm-hmm. of, of the of the disciples,
0: right, right. yes. We've so really seen it. so
1: he's not he's not repeating it here, and but it it kind again to me Matthew's abbreviation kind of is abrupt I think, and it it I I think having compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd is a much I don't know, better statement of his compassion. It emphasizes his compassion more. And even though Matthew's trying to draw attention to, to, to Jesus in the, in the way he edits Mark, I think he, he left too much out here. <laughs> I, would, I would fault him for that myself. I would have preferred that, that he left it in. Now, the focal point of the lesson in Matthew's gospel is on the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples, which fits Matthew's emphasis on discipleship as well. And furthermore, unlike in Mark's gospel, where the disciples misunderstand to the point of being obtuse, and we talked about how dense they were when we were yes, going through yes, Mark, yes. Matthew portrays them in a much better light. Here, here, what they lack is not understanding but faith. And later in Matthew, we'll see the phrase "Oh, you of little faith." It's going to be, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to become a theme in Matthew. So. Um, you know, the the disciples come off looking a lot better in Matthew than they do in Mark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, also, you know, when I read Matthew's version, I wonder if perhaps the feeding miracle is meant to be a lesson for the disciples in Matthew,
0: because yeah.
1: they're the focal yeah. point of, of everything. right. At any rate, as in Mark, it was the disciples who told Jesus to send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves in Matthew fourteen fifteen, And in response, Jesus simply answers, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, um... I think the fact that Matthew, you know, you give them something to eat is something that's found in, in yes, I think, all yes. three Gospels. But Matthew adds they need not go away. Only Matthew has that part. And I think mm-hmm. the idea here is it's, it's meant to point that the Lord Jesus knew all along what he planned to do. So he's yeah. sort of the sovereign Lord who's, who knows what he's going to do. He's, he's not, you know, nothing takes him by surprise. You know, he's, he's, he's acting with full agency here. And furthermore, after this, Matthew omits the disciples' objection in Mark's gospel that they couldn't feed the crowd with 200 denarii worth of food. Again, sparing them the implication that they were so dense that they just simply couldn't understand, but also enhancing the impression that Jesus had a plan. And perhaps Mm -hmm. they even had an idea that Jesus had a plan. And mm-hmm. so in Matthew, they simply tell him we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And it's, you know, it seems like it play, they're playing along with Jesus a little bit more. And they're, they're not quite so clueless. They kind of get the fact that Jesus is planning on doing something and maybe something miraculous. Um, and, and so they just offer up the five loaves and two fish. And so Jesus' response, bring them here to me, again, seems to convey this idea of sovereignty that Jesus knew what he would and could do for the crowds.
0: Hmm. And so this is interesting because we you talked earlier that crowds didn't know a miracle happened, mm-hmm. but the disciples surely yeah. did.
1: Yeah, surely did. Yeah, they are the ones who distribute the food. They're the ones who gather up the the yes. fragments.
0: Right. It's almost as if they're empowered as through part of that to be distributors. So they're mm-hmm. they're becoming kind of branches of yeah. of God's goodness, and that's kind of. That's well, and that was
1: one, that's also one interpretation that's been suggested in the history of the church that part of the meaning of this is to show the disciples as, as the ones who are meant to carry, um, you know, the message or the ministry of Jesus to others. Mm-hmm. I, again, I think that's reading a bit too much into this particular chapter. Yeah, I think so too, but yeah. it is,
0: it is and I think it's important to. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's important to acknowledge the discipleship in, and the disciples as called living kind of into their call.
1: Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. So then comes the report of the feeding miracle itself, and as I've remarked probably every time we've done this for, for, for Mark and for Luke, And even for John, there is no description of the miracle itself. We're simply told that he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. That's verses 19 and 20. What we don't have here is any description of the miracle itself.
0: Yep. I've heard lots of, lots of attempted explanations as to what happened. Yeah. you yeah. know. Well, I think and, about uh, the
1: Jesus movie, you know, where Jesus lifts up this, this basket, you know, and when it comes down, it's overflowing with loaves yes, and fish, yes, right? Yes, you know, yes. Sort of an instantaneous miracle that everybody sees. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, the, you know, sometimes I think it's fun to try to act out um, scenes, because it really makes you a, attuned to what you're actually reading and so this one all of that is not in here no right Um, it's not there at all to see so to think of this we don't have a lot to go on in terms of being a director right so and to act it out the way that we see it is all of a sudden yeah
1: it's a very subtle miracle yeah Mm -hmm. so we should we should again and again matthew has omitted more details here either to hasten the action or to focus all attention on Jesus, or perhaps both. One thing I want to note, though, is that the verb "eulogesen" to bless, is open to misunderstanding in most English translations. Uh, In the the New Revised Standard Version, Mm -hmm. uh, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Well, whom or what did he bless, according to that?
0: Well,
1: the bread, right, right. That's yeah. the what. That's what it seems like. But um, the in a Jewish context, one does not bless food. One says a blessing to God. In other words, mm-hmm. uh, so for example, um, the the Good News Translation, he gave thanks to God, and the Phillips mm-hmm. translation, the New Century Version, the the NET Bible, and the NIV all have some uh i some similar he gave thanks yeah basically yes. because euloges in there is is just by itself referred to the idea of thanking god blessing blessing god for right. for the gifts of food um, I
0: thought this was an important detail that um i hadn't really
1: thought about yeah it really is surprising to me um and there's only a handful the phillips uh, the good the good news translation phillips the new century version the net bible the niv the english standard version and the new american bible that that noticed this even nt wright misses this
0: which (laughs) which
1: which is surprising to me because um um, uh, you'd think he'd be on top of that but Anyway, so it's important, I think, for us to, I I don't know, I think that's a, maybe it's a minor detail, but um, Jesus wasn't blessing the loaves. He was blessing God at this point. Mm
0: -hmm. And and
1: that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, so in this verse, then, the language of blessed, broke, gave them to the disciples is probably the strongest evidence uh, of that Matthew is foreshadowing the Last Supper and or presenting a reminiscence of the Lord's Supper. Uh, as is the fact that Matthew omits any reference to the fish at this point. You know, be, uh, right, up, up, right. up above where where the disciples say, we have here but five loaves and two fish. That's mm-hmm. the last time the fish come into play. Um, in, in Mark 6.41, Jesus distributes right. both the bread and the fish. But in, right. in Matthew, it's just, he says, the, the bread. It's just the bread. The loaves. I've noticed that yeah. before. Yep. Yeah. So, um um, those, the, the the language of blessed broke and gave, and then the fact that, that Matthew omits any reference to the fish is the strongest uh, suggestion that, that maybe he's foreshadowing the Last Supper or. Um, including a reminiscence of the, of the Lord's Supper. And again, as I said before, many think it was the experience of the presence of the Lord Jesus at their shared meals, which often concluded with the Lord's Supper, that was the impetus for composing this miracle story in the first place, and point to connections between Matthew's account of the feeding miracle and his account of the Last Supper as evidence. I personally think the evidence of a Eucharistic theme here is Very minimal. And especially when you think about John's version. John's version of the Mm -hmm. Feeding the 5,000, I think, has a strongly Eucharistic theme. and 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 here it's it's just just very minimal if it's there at all.
0: Well, and again, it it also relates to our desire to compress them all together in one experience. But our Reformers actually did not go there, Mm -hmm. which... I thought mm-hmm. was interesting. I kind of expected it, and it, it wasn't there.
1: Well, so. maybe because the Catholic Reformation was going there. I don't know. In the Catholic well, Church, they were dealing that, with that. Well,
0: that might have been part of it, mm-hmm. but, you know, while they've tried to compress, sometimes they would they just noticed that there's things that were different. Yeah. Um, And so that may have been what they were after there, or... Uh, maybe that's just their focus was different, right? As you yep. said, because the Roman Catholics would have been on that theme that they kind of took a different direction. Right. So.
1: We don't know. Yep. Yep. Now, the conclusion of the story in verse 21 emphasizes the size of the crowd, especially in light of the fact that all ate and were satisfied. So, you know, th- that, that point is important. All ate and were satisfied. They didn't just have a morsel. Uh, And so Matthew tells us that those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. But only Matthew adds the besides women and children. Uh, In Luke, it's the excess of leftovers that serves to emphasize the miracle. Mark simply tells us that those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. And so only Matthew adds this detail that that it was 5,000 men besides the women and children, which Probably, I would say Matthew's adding this detail to clarify something that Mark was implying. I think it's implied in Mark, in Mark's gospel.
0: Right, yeah, I, I would say so as well.
1: Yeah, right? but yeah. Matthew is simply making that explicit. I think it's important to note that in the Western church, both ancient and medieval, um, um, that Matthew's statement here was taken differently. Because in the Greek text, it's the word chorus. Chorus so you could read it as accepting the women and the children in other words the men were the ones who ate and the women and children are excluded from that number okay, but it doesn't
0: make any i mean
1: it makes no sense not out of this in this sense, context right? no it makes no yeah. sense in this context and, and and basically, Jerome said that they were excluded from the meal because they were considered unworthy, which is sad.
0: <laughs> well, but that would have been that would have been a very kind of uh, part part and parcel with that time period surely. too, where you kind yeah. of got that Neoplatonic kind of yeah. construct of women being below men. Yeah, so, surely, but unfortunately, that kind of things kind of made its way amongst some. I've, among some more conservative groups right
1: well and again you've got jerome jerome was a was a scholar of of you know no small yes, stature you know and and yet he bought into this which is sad i guess we're all we're all we all have feet of clay when well, it comes to the culture yeah, the influence and, of our culture
0: with his culture he's he's yeah. he's a, he's still surrounded in that culture where yeah. women are second-class citizens and so right. he's reading it with those that lens
1: right So, again, that this story was formulated solely from the church's experience at meals and with the Lord's Supper, I think, is a stretch. That the story was shaped by that experience, I think, is entirely plausible. But I don't find a whole lot of that evidence in Matthew's account. Also, We've seen in various echoes from the Hebrew Bible and other versions of the feeding of the five thousand, especially um, the the miracle that Elisha—I believe it's Elisha in Second Kings chapter 4, four, verses forty-two through forty-two—he feeds a hundred men with just a handful of barley loaves. Mm-hmm. Um, Matthew's editing has removed most of those echoes, also. Mm-hmm. So you know, again. You may be getting the, you may be beginning to catch on that Matthew's not my favorite gospel. <laughs> right, um,
0: right.
1: Um, you know, I, I love all of the um, allusions to the Hebrew Bible. I love all the extra detail uh, that Mark puts in there, and and yes. um, um I, you know, I get that Matthew's trying to focus on certain themes, but I think he's also editing for the sake of abbreviation and i think he leaves some things out that 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 are significant so but in matthew this story focuses on jesus who has both the compassion and the power not only to heal the people from their diseases but also to feed them and whether it happened or didn't happen you know whether we can prove it or not prove it that seems to be the point of this message of this passage in matthew's gospel
0: thank you alan thanks That's, uh, very good
1: thanks Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to talk about what the Reformers had to say about the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew's Gospel. So, Christy, uh, help us out here.
0: Yeah, so today I spent time with the um, Reformation Commentary, so I have a variety of voices. And it really seemed today that their emphasis was really on on who Christ is, on, on Christology. And so not only about who Christ is, but how Christ works in the world and they were asking questions as to why christ performed this miracle when it was done and how it was done and if indeed christ knew that the crowds would be hungry they questioned why did he wait so long well that makes sense
1: (laughs) that makes sense yeah
0: yeah yeah why did he use the loaves and the fishes so i'm going to explore some of their analyses first one of the big things they point out is this is an example of Christ's compassion. Um, and Christ performed the miracle because he took compassion on the crowds. Uh, the, and I've looked at a voice that we haven't met before. His name is David Pereus, And he adds that Jesus had compassion for the same crowd, the one that doesn't like him, um, that's not on board with Jesus' teaching. And he just showed them compassion as human beings. That their need outweighed his work, so I thought that was interesting that
1: brings in that 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 idea that um, you know from Matthew thirteen that the crowds were opposed to him or that they were outsiders. Exactly. yeah
0: exactly yeah. now I wanted to tell you um this is a reformed position about Christ in action in my opinion, um the doing of christ as as and then connected to Jesus's word. Mm-hmm. So this emphasizes that Jesus is doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pereus, I should mention, because he's new to us. He's a figure that we have not met. Um, he's a reformed German theologian of the late 16th and early 17th century. We sometimes only think of Germany in terms of Lutheran theologians, right? Because it, most of those people will become either uh, followers of Luther, if you will, a Roman Catholic. But we do have Reformed theologians that are indeed German. And this is one of them. Um, and so he is um, a later a later figure than than even Calvin. He's, he's really a gen- couple generations after Calvin. Um, and he's an apologist for Calvin, but he works in German sources. So one of the things that this fellow did is he took one of the later versions of Luther's Deutsche Bible and he put it with reformed annotations, mm. which is really interesting. Saying, "Look, we're not that far off. We're still in this discussion." And yeah. so, he, it's this really robust theological investigation. But it's happening during the pr- time that historians identify as the as the time of confessionalization, a big word which means that that at this time the Lutherans had kind of started to decide this is what how we understand scripture and. The Roman Catholics had done this, and so did the Reformed tradition. Um, and this is really what comes to kind of define those folks that, that decide what Calvinism is, and frankly, Lutheranism is. And there's a lot of intolerance for ideas at this time. So here's this guy working in this time period, trying to be a unifier. Um, his, his work is actually rejected by the Lutherans. But I think for us, and it reminds us of the need to be in conversation with Scripture, and all those voices, and to be aware that this idea—you know, this—I always am reminded of Calvinism and the Synod of Dort, and this, these groups today that take this as the backbone of uh, and the absolutes of Reformed tradition, and that really. Ref- Reformed tradition is about being in discussion and being in in constant dialogue with the scripture. So I just thought that was, he's an interesting figure. Yeah, yeah. So moving back, I wanna go back to the second piece about Christology, and that was the humility of Christ. And this idea that his response um, was because of the great need of the people, not because he wanted to show his power. And Alan, this is where they picked up on that he didn't do this whole big miracle display, hmm. um, but rather that this he performed this because, because the people were in, in such need.
1: So he draw, so, didn't draw attention to himself. It, that's exactly. where the subtlety comes in. Wow, that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Um, the third, however, and this seems just the opposite, <laughs> Right. but was that the, the power, uh, God's power. And that despite... Jesus' humility, it is indeed a display of the power of God. Sure. That they are fed. Sure. And not just a just a not just a display in the opinion here of the power of the disciples, but also for the crowds. Oh,
1: so the crowds um, are in on it, huh?
0: Well yeah, it, it and I, I kinda combined a couple ideas here, but it was done in the hands of the disciples, um, And this idea that calvin suggested they suggested it was a means to show the miracle arose from jesus and it went out through his disciples Mm. and and i i think it was a means to display divine power and calvin goes further in his analysis by discussing why the individuals are divided into little groups and calvin suggests that they do so in order to quote bear testimony to this heavenly favor Mm. so calvin is emphasizing this corporate nature of faith that plays a role in our Reformed tradition. And he also addresses disciples, the, the disciples whom he used to enact the miracle, then in giving them the power over the loaves, they became ministers of Christ's divine power.
1: It seems, though, that the whole pre- the premise of this is that the crowd is aware that there's something yeah, miraculous I, going I on. So. I, yeah, I think so.
0: I think Calvin, so with Calvin. And the first piece I read, this is a kind of com- combining um, a, a little bit later Reformed tradition. Um, Writer, I call the um, the annotations, which are uh, come from an English Reformed tradition, um, as I'm kind of analyzing the Christology here. So Calvin seems to give more emphasis that the crowds are in on it, and I think mm-hmm. what's interesting for Calvin is, um, and I I may go into this later, but this this whole idea that the message is important for. Everybody, and there's a great mm. hope in this, yeah, in that they're re- all receiving the food. It's not because in this crowd that doesn't like Jesus, they're probably re- reprobate, right? And, and they're, and so I think this is kind of an interesting um, push on Calvin a little bit that he's saying, Look, all of these people are worthy of getting the food. So, <laughs> Kind of interesting. Well, and I
1: mean, that's the point I was trying to make is that, you know, when you go back to this section of Matthew's narrative, after going through the parables discourse, it seems like the crowds are still potential disciples. They're not enemies or opponents at all.
0: And I think that's what Calvin would agree with you there, right? Yeah. So fourth, it's an example of God's providence that Jesus will work for the people that he is, quote, ever watching to relieve those that depend on him. And this is Calvin, and it's a big part of Calvin's theology regarding the event. Um, Calvin steeps it in the language of the kingdom of God. And for Calvin, the passage is fully about ushering in the kingdom of God. So it fits within the context of Calvin that those who belong to God, those who are chosen will be provided for by God. But the twist, as we just talked about, is to imply that all those in the
1: crowd,
0: because they're inquiring about the word because they're hearing the word and are listening to him are being fed so and this this kind of also tag tags on calvin's insistence that we continue to spread the word of god mm-hmm. right that everyone has to be hear it in order so that they have an opportunity to respond to it so um, well i mean
1: this passage does be does begin with saying that the crowd followed that followed him right mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. apparently on foot around the sea
0: <laughs> right and so I've, I just found this very hopeful for Calvin. And here it seems he emphasized that all who are seeking the Christ will meet their needs. Mm. And it's it's different than that certainty of kind of just you know chosen Calvinism versus reprobate. Calvinists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that we associate with Calvin. And yeah. uh, I love that gent- gentler tone. We've seen this before with Calvin, uh, where he's emphasizing Christ's compassion. Sure. And then I wanted to uh, take step away from this kind of points of Christology to discuss the debate that is evident in the direct exegesis of this passage in our Reformers. So while I'm showing you how this pass in this passage, how they used it to define who Christ is, they don't always agree on the emphasis. So we, we just saw Calvin and his emphasis on Christ's action as an agent to empower the masses to live into their faith. But the opposite exists, which treats Christ more as a king who demands their obedience. Mm. So um, kind of this response to faith or coming then from faith is pushed down. Um, mm. And in Reformation commentaries, it's put forth by an Anglican bishop named Joseph Hall. And I think it's important to note that he served in the church in the midst of the reign of James I. So really as we're starting to assert this divine right of kings concept, um, and so he argued for the priestly role of Christ as paramount, and then of course that supports this hierarchical structure of the sh- of the church, where the divine right that that power of the church comes down to the power of the king. Mm. Um, and uh, I thought that was it. So I, I guess we're seeing in the broader context uh, Calvin's corporate church, you know, priesthood of all believers. Um, the the quality of the church versus this kind of priestly cast coming down from christ that um, was in there and then finally i the final piece that i read was by johannes brenz and remember he's a lutheran uh, he's a lutheran guy although he's 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 in dialogue with reformed tradition early reformer right he was a student of echolopatius we've met him before and he believed that the whole miracle is to quote prove the truth of christ's gospel And what does he mean by this, however, is the question I would have. And he he claims that Christ had not performed the miracle, had had Christ not performed the miracle, that the people would have tried to feed themselves by unjust means. In other words, the pangs of hunger would bring out the worst of humanity, or in early 16th century terms, that Satan would have helped them procure it by quote, iniquity and and injustice. Um, And he doesn't expound on that, But it is interesting to speculate how the few loaves and fishes would have been fought over and potentially led to rioting. And he notes that when we trust in God, our provider, that all could be satisfied. So Bren's in particular makes a connection between the literal literal physical bread and fish and a metaphorical concept of how Christ provides for them.
1: You know, I mean, I get it, but how would would a crowd of over 5,000 people... Even have known that a, gr- a little group in the in the middle had this tiny amount of food, and re- would they really all have begun fighting over it? I mean, it seems to me that the folks on the periphery of the crowd would have would have thought, you know, we're not we're not even going to get close to it. It's not even worth our while to try to try to do this.
0: Yeah. Well, again, but then I think you're taking away that concept of Satan that is so mm-hmm. right because Satan would have taken over them all you know what up. i'm saying yeah. yeah it'd
1: be kind of a kind of a uh, possession going on
0: oh, oh right right yeah. and i think that's a very mm. you still see that particularly in these earlier in these earlier theologians that you tend to see that satan language a lot that and, would and override that, that their
1: kingdom. their powers of of common sense i guess <laughs>
0: exactly exactly yeah. so anyway that's what i have for you today
1: okay thanks christy
0: thank you Hi, everybody. we're back and uh in our little break, Alan and I were talking about maybe how we should reflect on this passage and I think one thing when you get um a story that you find even here in all four gospels that you tend to teach it as kind of a a uniform this is what happened, and we tend to remember it as such, and we might go along oh the the miracle of the loaves and the fishes or the feeding of the five thousand or Um, however we reference it people have an image in their mind not again not taking all these details and so you know when i i think in my mind has always been the emphasis on the miracle pieces the image we talked about before with jesus holding it in, in the air but i wonder here um how matthew constructs this to give us a specific theological uh view. And so I wanted Alan to maybe talk about that more and think about really how this goes way beyond the the kind of simple explanation that we have of this, this, this story.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Christy. Um, you know, one thing that I, when I think about this, you know, one thing that Matthew agrees on with all the other gospel writers is they don't provide any description of the miracle itself. And so despite the images we have from various things like the Jesus film and things like that, I think that this particular miracle was a very subtle one that took place, you know, who knows how, I mean it, you know, it, it's one of those things where they started out with five loaves and two fish and they wound up with, um, someone said these baskets were, could contain like 10 liters, <laughs> So 120 liters of leftovers. <laughs> so right. um, um, you know, um, and everybody ate. And and I, you know, there's it's it's there, it's almost like it's almost like the miracle of the manna. You know, every morning the manna was there. It was just there. Right, and right. They you know, it.
0: that's a that's an interesting connection. Yeah. I don't know that there's an intentional connection there, but that is an interesting.
1: I mean, it's con- um, it's intentional in John's account of the feeding the five thousand. It's not right, here, right?
0: Not here. But right. but
1: in all four gospels, it's a very understated miracle. It's probably the most un- understated miracle of all the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, and um, so, I I just I think it's important for us to respect that um, f- that you know common agreement on the part of all four gospel writers. They don't even try to describe how the actual miracle takes place.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, that's an interesting, it's a, that is an interesting point. Well, and it makes you think that maybe the emphasis isn't supposed to be on that miracle itself.
1: hmm well, and this leads us to the idea that, you know, um, so some miracles in the gospel stories focus on the question, who is Jesus? And some miracles in the gospel stories focus on uh, the presence of the kingdom. Um, and, and this is one of those miracles that kind of does both, I think. Um, you know, because part of the question of who is Jesus is linked with the presence of the kingdom. Uh, now, next week, we're going to talk about Matthew's, uh, version of the walking on the water. And, you know, in, in, in Matthew and Mark, when, when Jesus walks on the water, the, the disciples both say, who is this man? You know, or, or when Jesus calms the storm, they say, who is this man that he can command the winds and waves and they obey him? You know, and so that's very clear that the point of that, that miracle is who is Jesus? Right, and right. asking that question and, and it's leading us to the idea that he's more than just a man, he is someone more right. than that and they're, they're, it's part of their awakening of their understanding of who Jesus was. But we see that here as well. And I think from, from Matthew's perspective, you know, we, we've seen how Matthew wants to portray Jesus as the Messiah. We've seen how Matthew wants to portray Jesus as the Son of God. We've seen how Matthew wants to portray Jesus as someone who teaches with authority, but also who ministers with power. And and he displays, you know, that ministry here. Um, it's interesting that the whole. You no, know, a lot of people think that um, in Matthew's account of the feeding of the five thousand, he is portraying Jesus in a messianic light as as foreshadowing the the messianic banquet that will occur, um, you know, in the in the in the completion of the kingdom of God in the end. Again, I don't know that I can agree with that because it seems like Matthew stripped out a lot of that a lot of the the detail that would point in right. that direction. So right. so um, I really think, in, you know, in Matthew's gospel, it's really a focus on Jesus. Who is Jesus? And 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 we see who Jesus is through what he does. And, and you know, well, he's the one and, who not only has the power and the compassion to heal people, but he has the power and the compassion to feed this multitude.
0: Right. Well, and, you know, interesting, when I did the Reformers, I, I was kind of surprised. I really thought they would dig into this whole kind of Eucharistic f- Symbolism thing, and they didn't go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably because the Roman Catholics did, mm-hmm. but they, really, they were they really emphasizing this this Jesus, um, this humility, this um, uh, and compassion uh, of of Jesus um, and uh, and power, but power to um, power to act be an agent of God's kingdom. Yeah, and I thought that was a really I was kind of taken aback. I thought it was really interesting comments that they had. I thought they were very um, astute for their time.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, as you mentioned the the part about the Eucharist. I, you know, the, the the two I think really major English language commentaries on Matthew's Gospel are. Davies and Allison's three volumes uh, in the International Critical Commentary series, and uh, Ulrich Lutz's commentary, uh, two-volume commentary in the um, in the Hermenia series, and um, um, they're you know very technical commentaries, and they both take the same approach, even though they have a little bit different perspectives on sort of the historicity or the you know what actually happened. Um, they both take the same approach that. That Matthew's version of the feeding of the five thousand is heavily influenced by Eucharistic um, ideas, and, and Davies and Allison even um, um, list all the pretty much. They take verse nineteen and the whole the whole uh, steps of Jesus took the bread and he, he blessed it and he broke it, and they um, they. Um, lay out the way Matthew's version of the Last Supper is arranged and want to say, you know, well, see, this shows that they're lined up. Again, in my mind, you know, that he he blessed and he broke and he gave it. That's the clearest analogy. But I don't mm-hmm. think that's really a significant um, connection at all. It's a hint at best in Matthew's gospel, mm-hmm. again, because I think because Matthew's abbreviating so much that he just kind of takes out all the all the detail that that, uh, that Mark has in his version, right? And right. so it's it's yeah, I I'm not convinced about about that, and and um, I I really think in Matthew Matthew is stripping out all the all the detail to focus more on Jesus, and and yeah. you know that seems to be consistent with Matthew's methodology in his gospel as a whole. He wants to focus right. on Jesus.
0: Well, yeah, and that it makes sense. And I kind of like, you know, in terms of preaching it through Matthew, I kind of like that emphasis, right? Yeah, it, yeah. It, um, yeah I kind of like that opportunity to not talk so much about the miracle and talk about Jesus, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, I think because my view of this is we always talk about the miracle.
1: Yeah, um, right.
0: Yeah. We do, so,
1: we do yeah
0: we do and that would make we sense i would make
1: sense with this particular passage would be to talk more about jesus now one of the mm-hmm. things that i miss is is you know as i mentioned you know if you read the the gospels in general and particularly the synoptic gospels the miracles are the the main focus on the miracles is the kingdom of god They demonstrate the presence of the kingdom of god and um I'm not finding that in Matthew's gospel so much as I did in Mark and Luke. I'm finding Matthew is emphasizing more on Jesus, and perhaps that has to do with his particular setting. That that was something that he felt was important. Interesting, but well, because um, we
0: have obviously the mirror, uh, the kingdom of God, the parables about right, the kingdom, all those things right, in right, Matthew. So, right. but those, but the
1: parables are are meant to, you know, the whole point of that chapter. Remember, is I'm teaching in parables. Because you get to understand and hear, and the ones outside right. who don't listen to my message uh, don't get to understand and hear. And so, it, that you know, the, 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 the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom of, of heaven in Matthew 13 is that, you know, you guys get to understand, and the rest of them don't.
0: Even the kingdom of heaven language is kind of steeped in, in, in Jesus' unique identity.
1: Well, I would say I would say the kingdom of heaven language in Matthew's gospel is steeped in Matthew's apocalyptic theology.
0: Well, okay, that's fair.
1: And and that's and fair. you know, but you know, he does he does focus more on Jesus, which is but, which is a good thing. But
0: Jesus is maybe I'm trying to box Matthew too much that he has different emphases that he's trying to get, which with this apocalyptic lang- language and now at this mm-hmm. particular one this emphasis on Jesus' identity.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think, you know, for Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is a concept that is more akin to what John the Baptist had to say, you know, in terms of sifting and sorting people out and and the, the good separated from the bad and the bad being destroyed by fire um i think i think matthew really does buy into that version of the kingdom of heaven and so i think that's probably part of the reason that may be part of the reason why um the miracles don't focus so much on the kingdom of heaven but rather focus more on jesus person
0: well that's
1: because jesus is the one who ministers with compassion and matthew matthew doesn't want to get around that and he doesn't change that but um i I, and whatever was about his situation you know his his community. I think was was similar to John's community. Was under fire, and that's what apocalyptic thinking appeals right. to is well, people who are under fire.
0: Here's the danger with you know take if we we have this lens of Matthew, and I think it's good for us to understand it. But if you pulled out Matthew without the other broader context of Scripture and the Gospels, you could be teaching a pretty harsh view of Scripture. Um, and and, and uh, there Christ, are people who do. And exactly, and so I think, you know, I, I can hear that done. So I think for me, I'm still gonna have to to shape it in that broader language yes. of of who Jesus God is, been revealed in the in the whole of Scripture, not right. just M- Matthew's lens.
1: Well, and I think I think fortunately Matthew retains that lens of Jesus' compassion combined with his power. Um, and and you don't see you know uh, the the emphasis on the separation of the good and the bad is is found in that parables discourse and and here he goes back to Mark's Mark's presentation of Jesus as you know ministering with compassion and and you have things like that in in Matthew's gospel it's not completely missing um, in the in the Sermon on the Mount we saw it you know that that you know your father causes the sun to shine on the good and the bad alike and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And so, you know, you have that in Matthew. It's just the parables discourse, because it's... it's so in Matthew's composition, it follows up on the, the the introduction of the intensity of the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and that seems to be the the the, the crux for Matthew's community is their conflict with the Jewish leaders. They mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. Um, right. they had ostracized them. They had kicked them out of their own synagogues, maybe even out of their own families. And, right. and so there's a lot of pain going on there and that's apocalyptic thinking appeals to people who are, who are under, who are being right. oppressed. Right? right. And so, right. um, um, I think that's part of what's going on with Matthew. Uh, but fortunately in this passage, you know, the tradition of Jesus as one who, um, ministers with compassion and with power, um, is, is you know, prevails. I mean, that's, that's right. the idea. I
0: agree. I agree. That's, that's, Certainly what we caught out of it, what the reformers got out of it at the end of the day. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that's what the way I preach it, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and that seems to be, you know, even those who would say they doubt whether or not this miracle actually happened, you know, they they still come back to the idea that Jesus, uh, this shows Jesus as as the one who has both the compassion and the power, not only to heal the people, I, but also to feed them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been fun, Alan. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us.
0: It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ.
1: We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.